Amen. And please take your Bibles and turn to Judges chapter 5. We read Judges chapter 4. I'd like you to turn to Judges chapter 5, if you would. Judges chapter 5. This sermon is entitled, Don't Go Camping with a Kenite. Maybe you can figure out why as we go. We just sang a great hymn that I think is great both because of the content of its words and also because of the tune, the melody that goes with it. It matches. Uh, sometimes when melody does not match words, it's, it leads to a very uncomfortable feeling, such as if it was your birthday and I walked up to you and said, happy birthday to you, happy birthday. You would just say, that doesn't work, right? Uh, it's a birthday. It's happy. The melody does not match the contents of the words. If I was to sing the Canadian national anthem with all my vigor and all my throat, and you would say, boy, that, that matches. It's a soaring anthem. The words match the melody. He's singing it like he means it. Well, the Bible does not include music to the songs that are written in it. You have a whole book of psalms, that most of which were sung. We like to sing them now. We sang one this morning. Um, but we're not told how these things were sung. We're not given the melody. And if you travel across the world, you find people sing very, very differently in very, very different ways. And that's probably God's wisdom that he did not include the melody because it would be difficult for us to sing as 21st century Canadians the way Judges chapter 5 was first sung. So Judges chapter 5 is a song. You, you, we've read the narrative, the account of this Judge, Bar Judge Deborah who gets Barak uh, to fight against Sisera, and Sisera runs away and hides in the tent of um, Jael, and Jael takes a tent peg and a hammer, and that's the end of Sisera. And this is God's great deliverance for Israel. Well, this deliverance was so great that after the account is given, a song is written. And we're told there that this is a song that Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, sang on that day. And as weird as this is going to be, um, this is hard to experiment in your office during the week, so uh, I'm going to try. I think sometimes you understand a song better if there's melody attached to it. So I'm going to sing you chapter 5. I know this is weird. Please turn off all recording devices. <laughs> but it's an effort to try and get across some of what is being poetically expressed here, all right? So here we go. <laughs> that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly, bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Mount Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned and travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be. Until I arose, I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. When the new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. 
was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel. My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. Tell of it, you who ride on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets, and you who walk by the way to the sound of musicians at the watering places. There they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of the villagers in Israel. Then down to the gates marched the people of the Lord. Awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake, break out in song. Arise, Barak, lead away your captives, O son of Abinimim. Then down marched the remnant of the noble, the people of the Lord marched down from me against the mighty. From Ephraim their root they marched down into the valley, following you, Benjamin, from your kinsmen. From Macher reached out, from the, marched down the commanders, and from Zebulun those who bear the lieutenant's staff. The princes of Issachar came with Deborah and Issachar faithful to Barak into the valley. They rushed at his heels. Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. Zebulun of the people who risked their lives to the death, Naphtali too on the heights of the field. Then kings came, they fought, then fought the kings of Canaan at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They got no spoils of silver. From heaven the stars fought, from their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away, the ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon. March on my soul with might. Then loud beat the horses' hooves. In the galloping, galloping of his steeds. Curse, Miraz, says the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants thoroughly, because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women most blessed. He asked for water, and she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. She sent her hand to the tent peg, and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he sank, he fell. He lay still. Between her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell dead. Out of the window she peered. The mother of Sisera wailed through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? Her wisest princesses answer. Indeed, she answers herself. Have they not found and divided the spoil a womb or two for every man? Spoil of dyed materials for Sisera, spoil of dyed materials embroidered, two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck as spoil. Ha! Huh. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. <laughs> Amen. Amen. All right. 
What's happening in Judges chapter 4 and Judges chapter 5? Let me give you three things. The first one is this. God uses normal people to accomplish supernatural things. Whenever you're reading a biblical narrative, like chapter 4 of Judges, you need to be careful. One thing you want to look for are the characters in the story and also the storyline. So, you know, introduction and then crisis, climax, denouement, that's what you want to sort of keep your eyes peeled for. So we're going to start with the characters of the story. Understanding who these people are is super helpful. First of all, there's Deborah, verse 4. Deborah, this is chapter 4, verse 4, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. So you've got Deborah, who's a prophet, which means she spoke words that came directly from God to specific people. That's why she can say to Barak in verse 6, has not Yahweh, the God of Israel, commanded you, go gather your men at Mount Tabor? Or verse 14, up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So this Deborah is a prophet. She's receiving direct communication from Yahweh, which she's then telling to Barak. So she's like Samuel or Isaiah or Jeremiah or one of the other female prophets like Moses' sister Miriam. She's called a prophet in Exodus 15.20. Huldah, the wife of Shalem. You'll see her in 2 Kings 22. Anna is a prophet in the days of baby Jesus, Luke chapter 2. And so while it's not unheard of, it's unusual that a woman would be a prophet. And Deborah, uh, her name means the bee. What an interesting thing to think about. Um, if you think about bees, I was watching one in my porch yesterday. Anyway, she's the bee. She's the prophet. She's also a wife. She's married to Lapidoth. She's also a judge, the first judge who seems to add in this element of judicial work or law, interpreting God's law for the people. We see this in verse 5. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. So in the song that I just strangely sang in verse 7, chapter 5, um, it, it tells us that the peoples were staying out of the cities. They weren't going there because they're under this oppressive rule of Jabin. And because they're not in the cities and hiding in the rocks and the caves, uh, that would mean that there was no place to go. Like normally you would go to the city gates where the elders of the city would rule on matters of civic consequence or on the law. Now, nothing said about that in this narrative of... Um, them having to do that. But I think what you're seeing here with Deborah is a picture of real courage. If, if the elders, if the men aren't going to do it, then I'll do it under my palm tree. And people would come to her and they would want to know the judgment of God on particular matters. She's also a judge in the very same sense that the other judges we've seen so far. She's a deliverer. She's a savior. That's what the word judge means. She's one who's going to bring about a deliverance for the people of God. And she also calls herself a mother. Did you catch that in chapter 5, verse 7? Look at it there. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose, I, Deborah, as a mother in Israel. That's interesting. We know about the fathers in Israel, Isaac, Jacob, Abraham. Um, they're, they're leaders of the nation. Here Deborah calls herself a mother in Israel, one who provides care and support to leadership by the way, it is Mother's Day, and um, I'm never sure what to make of that day in church life. But I was reminded this week of something the Apostle Paul wrote. This is all in regards to mothers. 
At the end of his letter, in Romans chapter 16, verse 13, he says, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. She's been a mother to me as well. I think that's who in the church we always want to celebrate, not just on particular Sundays in May, but all year long we want to celebrate those who are mothers in the church. You, for instance, may not be a mother physically, but you can always be a mother in the church spiritually. You might not have born physical children, but you can bear spiritual children. And there's so many of you dear sisters who have both born children and not who I see functioning in the life of our church as the mothers of Israel here. And I just want to praise God for each of you and thank God. Uh, you open your homes, you open your lives, you get involved in people's, men and women, you're, you're just such servants of the Lord. And it is good for us to commemorate that and thank God for that. So this is Deborah, the mother of Israel, and here's Barak. I had a friend in college, her name was Deborah Barak. That's an honor. Like, I thought, there's, there's a young lady with a very... Um, with a dad with a very good sense of humor. Uh, so we don't know a whole lot about Barak. Uh, verse 6, he just sort of appears out of nowhere. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, said to him, Has not Yahweh, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, gather your men? Kadesh um, Naphtali is about 30 kilometers north of the Sea of Galilee. So if you picture Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea and kind of Jerusalem down here, we're, we're like way up north on the top of Israel. Deborah is way down south, so she's sending a, a distance, a message a very long way. Kids, uh, do you know who Lightning McQueen is? Nobody knows who Lightning McQueen is? Oh, all those great Cars movies? Uh, maybe you thought Lightning McQueen was the only person with the first name of Lightning, but actually Barak means lightning. This is Barak McIsrael. Uh, <laughs> um, it's interesting, names often mean things, and whether this is sort of indicating like lightning, he came out of nowhere and struck, uh, we don't know. But she says to him, gather your men, which means he must have been some kind of man of influence, leadership, maybe marauding force, we don't know. And uh, verse 10, chapter 4, he went out to Zebulun and Naphtali, and he called 10,000 men who went up with him. Now, Barak has been ridiculed through the years, uh, sometimes, uh, you know, labeled as a bit of a pansy because he didn't want to go to war unless Deborah went with him. But I'm not sure that's totally correct. I mean, Samuel will speak about Barak later, 1 Samuel chapter 12. Uh, he's recounting Israel's history to them when they're choosing a king. And he says, And Yahweh sent Jerubbaal, Barak, and Jephthah, and Samuel, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. He's sort of holding him up as a, as a good guy. And then you can get into the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. What more shall I say? You remember Hebrews 11, this great recounting of all these people of great faith. Time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets. You just read that list and you're going like, there's a lot of like, moral question marks about some of those people, but they're all deliverers who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, which is exactly what Barak does. So I want to put Barak in the same kind of column as Gideon. Remember Gideon, we'll see him in a couple of weeks' time, 
um, receives a word from the Lord, but he still wants confirmation. That's where we get this thing about, you know, putting out your fleece. I can't wait to talk about that. Anyway, um, Gideon does this um, because he wants confirmation from the Lord. Is this really what you want me to do? And in one sense, Barak, when he replies to Deborah, I'll only go to war if you come to the battlefield with me, I don't know that he's being cowardly as much as he's simply hesitating. He wants to be reassured. He wants the message to be verified. And if you think about it, just like God honors Gideon's fleece requests, so Deborah honors Barak's attendance request. Even though doing so leads her to say this, look at chapter 4, verse 9, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you're going will not lead to your glory, for Yahweh will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Which probably at that point made everybody think, well, I guess Deborah is going to chop off this guy's head or something. But I think there's a quick little lesson here for us. It, it, is, a, it is a consistent principle from cover to cover in your Bible. You must respond to revelation with occupation, not hesitation. If God says it, do it. God gave Barak a direct message. Gather your men, go fight, and I will bring about the victory. And so when God spells things out clearly for us, the only proper response is to just do it. You read it in your Bible, you do it. We'll come back to that later. There's Jabin, the king of Canaan. He's the bad guy oppressing Israel for 20 years. And then Sisera, he of the pounding temples. Uh, he seems to be the man who kept Jabin on his throne. He's got 900 iron chariot, chariots. That is a rather astronomical number for the time, which means he could take on anybody. He is a, he is a dominant force. Think of iron chariots as the weapon of mass destruction of that day. And so to go against Sisera is like Canada going against Russia. We don't have nuclear weapons. It's a losing battle. As much as we want to say, oh, 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 like, we, we just, we're outgunned and outmanned. And that's what it was like for Israel. All their weapons, we read later, have been confiscated. They don't even have swords anymore. Martial law is in force. So that's Sisera. He runs the, uh, the big army. And then, of course, Jael, this woman... Uh, verse 17 of chapter 4, Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. So Jael, we assume, is a Kenite. She's not Jewish. We've seen these Kenites before. This is, stretch your memory a bit. You go back to the very first sermon in Judges, Judges chapter 1, verse 16. The descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms, that's um, into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Arad, and they went and settled with the people. I pointed out when we were there that this makes the Kenites appear a little bit fishy right from the start, because rather than going in and, and ridding the people out of the cities, they just plop themselves down into Canaanite subdivisions and live amongst the Canaanites. Some of them go even further than that. You might have wondered, if you were paying attention when Dwight was reading through chapter 4, you're sort of going along in the story, and then there's this weird verse, verse 11. Look at verse 11. Like, out of nowhere. Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far, as far away as the oak of Za'anaim, which is near Kadesh. You say, Why? what's that doing there? Well, this is, this is like... Um, if you're playing go fish with your family 
and somebody's losing, you might just like tip your cards really quick. Just show them, show them the cards, see if they can guess right. Now, there's a little tip of the cards in the story. This is something important about this, this dude, Heber the Kenite. We read in verse 17 that there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hathor, so that's the big enemy, and the house of Heber the Kenite, that's Jael's husband, which means that there was some kind of covenant between this descendant of Moses' wife living in Israel. He's made some kind of covenant with the Canaanites in the promised land. So we're never really told in the story what Jael's, the wife, what her political alliances are, but we certainly know what her husband's political alliances are. And Deborah, in her song, gives us some idea of what Jael was like. Well, look at chapter 5, verse 24. Most blessed of women be Jael. She seems to be godly. She's certainly crafty. Verse 25, he asked for water and she gave him milk. And she's pragmatic. She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. And that, my friends, takes us to asking the question, all right, what happens? Now we know who the characters are. What happens in this narrative? This is number two. God uses extraordinary circumstances to accomplish his salvation. Here's how it breaks down. Israel, suffering, right? Why are they suffering? Why is Israel suffering? Because of their idolatry. Idolatry always leads to misery. Judges chapter 4, verse 1, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after he had died, and the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin. And so according to pattern, they worship idols, and God brings hardship into their lives. Twenty years of hardship. If you are 19 years of age or younger, would you please raise your hand? Right? Nice and high. Which means your whole lifetime would have been spent under foreign oppression. You can put your hands down now. So Israel's suffering. This takes us to scene two. God raises up Judge, Judge Deborah, who calls soldier Barak to bring about a military deliverance. And she gives Barak a couple of things from Yahweh, a battle plan and a promise of victory. So verse 7, I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops. There's a whole battle plan. You go here, I'll bring him there, and then you go get him. And a promise of victory. Yahweh says, I will give him into your hand. So if God speaks to you through a prophet and says to you, here's the plan, and here's the assurement of victory, what should you do? You should do what he says. That should have been enough to put Barak into action. But he hesitates, and that's why he doesn't get the glory. Verse 8, Barak said to her, if you go, will go with me, I will go but if you, speaking to Deborah, if you will not go with me, I will not go. He's not talking to God there. He's talking to Deborah, the judge. Now, he had just been told by Deborah that Yahweh was going to go with him. And he says, that's not good enough. I need you to go with me, Deborah. Mother of Israel, come along with me to the battlefield. And so she says she'll go, but you're not going to get the glory. And that takes us to scene three. God brings about the victory. So God's given the battle plan. He's given a promise of victory. And in response to Barak's hesitation, 
he also promises that he will use a most unlikely source to take care of Israel's enemy number one. And we see that a lot in our Bible, don't we? That God chooses to take the weak and the frail things in the world's estimation and use them to accomplish great things. The Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman, chapter 4, verse 9. So here we are at the battlefield. Deborah meets up with Barak. He's got his 10,000-man army on Mount Tabor. Mount Tabor is like a big lump in the middle of a nowhere. It's just this big hump. And uh, it's not so much a mountain as a giant hill. You can see it today. It, 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 at this time, it's right where three of the tribes sort of intersect, Zebulun, Issachar, and Naphtali. They kind of, their borders sort of all intersect in that area. Mount Tabor is a great place to launch a battle from because it's always better to fight from the high ground except for the fact that Barak had to come down from that mound to the plains below it in order to engage Sisera and his 900 chariots. They're just down there waiting for him. Now just think about this. 10,000 unarmed men versus 900 charioteers. These are not good betting odds. Put all your money on Sisera. Unless the Lord is fighting on the side of the 10,000. So, what do we read? Judges 4, verse 15. The Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. That's all we read. They were routed. What does routed mean? Uh, if you heard of a flashbang, a stun grenade, you see it in movies and things, um, they, you know, I, I don't know what that was, but anyway, they thing and they roll it into the room and there's a big flash of light and a deafening bang, flash bang, really brilliantly named. Uh, but it's, it's debilitating because the light is so bright, you go temporarily blind for about five seconds. It doesn't matter what you do, you can't see. And the noise is so loud, it like messes with your inner ear so you can't stand up. And so they throw that in and then they come in to get you. You've been routed, in other words. And that's kind of what this word means. Uh, to be routed is to be thrown into confusion. And it usually involves, in the Bible, it usually involves very loud noise. So Deborah's song gives us some of the details here about how the Lord routed Sisera and his 900 charioteers. Look at Judges 5, verse 4. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, before the Lord, the one of Sinai, the God of Israel. So I've read what in your ESV would be the footnoted version, which I think is a little better. Before the Lord, the one of Sinai. God comes to this battle in an earthquake and this massive deluge of water. This is not so unlike how God appeared on Mount Sinai. Remember that in Exodus? The, the nation draws near. They put up a fence, don't go any further, and the mountain is shaking. There's thunders and lightnings. It's, it's a huge storm, and God's presence is in the storm, as it were. So what you have in this battle is supernatural shaking of the earth and thunderstorm and probably great noise. There, there's hints of that even in the Sinai account, just this deafening noise. 
We read more in Judges chapter 5, verse 19. The kings came, they fought, then fought the kings of Canaan at Ta'anach by the waters of Megiddo. They got no spoils of silver. They don't, they don't win. Drop down to verse 21. The torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon. Now, Sisera, when he would, is... He's drawing Israel down from Mount Tabor to the, to the plains below. That's where the river Kishon flows. And if you've seen, uh, do you know what a wadi is? If you've been in the southwest in America, you might have seen these um, massive dry riverbeds through cities. Like they're, they're a couple hundred yards across. And you're like, there's no water there, guys. Like, isn't this a bit of overreaction? Until you've lived through a sudden rainstorm and it, all that water comes down off the mountains and now you've got like 20 feet of water and, and it's 200 yards across and this is, this is screaming down through this gully. Well, this is where the battle is being fought and apparently it's not rainy season, but God brings such a powerful deluge that it just sweeps away the iron chariots of Sisera. Probably lots of them just got stuck in the mud. Maybe more were submerged. We know a few of them got away um, because uh, Barak is going to chase them. And he chases them all and they, he catches them all and they all fall. Most of them must have got stuck right there, which is probably why Sisera, right? Remember him, the great commander of the Iron Chariot Army, bails from his chariot and he's hoofing it to JL's tent. When your chariot's gone, you're no match for 10,000 soldiers. So he runs to the closest ally he can find. Remember, Jael's husband is in a covenant with Sisera's side. But God says, hey, Sisera, you can run, but you can't hide. In fact, God was the one who brought him to this place. Remember, in verse 7 says, I will draw out Sisera, the, Sisera, the general of general of Jabin's army to meet you by the river Kishon and his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. So this is all Yahweh's doing. So the great chariot army of Canaan is gone, and all that remains is their leader, Sisera. This takes us to scene four. A woman kills Israel's number one enemy. So you got Sisera, right? The, the deluge, there goes my chariots. My chariot's stuck in the mud or something, and I'm hoofing it to Jael's tent. I know Heber's over here somewhere. I'm going to find his place. We're in covenant. I'll be safe there. While he's doing that, Barak is chasing the runaway chariots in the opposite direction. So he's doing the Lord's work, but if you, if you pulled out a map, you would see that Sisera's running this way, and his chariots are running that way, which is where Barak, the, the good guy, when Deborah said to do this battle, he's chasing them in the opposite direction. He catches them. Look at verse 15. Yahweh routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. Verse 16. Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harasheth Hagayim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left except for one, Sisera. But while Barak was pummeling Sisera's chariot army, J.L. was perforating Sisera's head. What do we know about Sisera? So he's been in a battle, he's tired, he's running, he's dehydrated, he's scared. He, fe he feels that he's safe in the arms of J.L., who invited him into her tent. Tryptophan, magnesium, melatonin, protein. Apparently, these are the things 
in milk when you warm it up and drink it before bed that make you sleepy. It's debated, but apparently that's what's going on here. Judges 5.25, he asked for water. She gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. So whether or not it was intended to make him sleepy, he did fall asleep. And that leads to something rather treacherous and, frankly, kind of gross. Here we go. Verse 21. Happy Mother's Day. (laughs) Uh, But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg. This would be a very large thing, probably about a foot long, generally wooden, and took a hammer in her hand. This would have been normal. It would have been typically typical. The women would set up the tent, so she knew how to wield these things. She went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness, so he died. Killing me softly with her peg and hammer in my head. Killing me softly. Okay, enough. Um, Look at verse 26. She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he sank, he fell. He lay still. Between her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. That is gross to us, but this is Deborah instructing Israel to rejoice in the death of their enemy. The enemy who's been making them hide in the hills for 20 years, that enemy falls to a woman. A woman defeats big, bad Sisera. For men like Sisera, that would be the most degrading and insulting way to die. You may not like hearing this. There's going to be another judge to come in the book of Judges who's going to turn to his armor bearer after getting his head cracked open from a millstone throwing woman with a good arm and say to his armor bearer, draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, a woman killed me. There was no greater shame for a warrior than falling to the hands of a woman. Now, you may not like hearing that. After all, in Canada, we have many women who serve in the military, but that was the state of things then. So, like Eglon before him, Sisera meets a disgraceful and a humiliating end. But I would say, friend, don't feel so bad for Sisera. His plan was to rape all the Israelite women after he killed their husbands. Uh, So his mother seems to report. His mother uh, she's given words by Deborah in Judges chapter 5, verse 30. Her, she's reassuring herself. Why isn't he back from the battle yet? Well, have they not found and divided the spoil a womb or two for every man? This is battlefield rape. He was an awful man. And he plundered Israel for 20 years. So that's why this event ends with a grand celebration and a song by Deborah and Barak and the complete removal of Jabin, now that the hitman is dead. And look at verse 31 of chapter 5, and the land had rest for 40 years. So there you go. And now we need to ask question number three, or point number three. People like us sit back and we go, how would you have us respond to all of this, Lord? Why is this in our Bible? How are we supposed to live? Let me give you four ideas. Three if you're a Christian already, and one if you're not. Maybe five. The most obvious lesson here is never go camping with a Kenite. Okay, that was for free. But there is much more here than that. Lesson number one, never respond to revelation 
with hesitation. I realize I said this before, but I told you I would come back to it. Barak said to her, if you will go with me, Deborah, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. Barak is not the only person who hesitates in this story. In the song of Deborah, chapter 5, verse 16, why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks among the clans of Reuben? There were great searchings of heart. Deborah's going, hey, other tribe of Israel, where were you in the time of battle? You're just over there hemming and hawing. Should we, shouldn't we? Eh, you know what? We'll just stay with our sheep. They hesitated. I'm, I'm pointing this out because I think it's vital for you to see in your Christian life. When the immortal God, who dwells in unapproachable light, exercises his eternal dominion, there is only ever one correct response. Yes, Lord. We are master excuse makers. But when God says do it, do it. Friend, I want to hold out to you promise, the more you live your life like this, the greater your joy will increase. The, the enemy will whisper in your ear, go this way, it'll be better. And it's always a lie. Idolatry leads to misery. And sometimes the simplest command, like speaking the truth, can feel like the biggest mountain to cross. But God will be with you as you do it. And he will give you grace. Always respond to revelation with occupation. Do what God tells us to do. Now, my second point is like the first, but a little bit different. Here I want to think not so much about, well, I do want to think about obeying God, but I want to think about obeying God in the details. I call this go with God. I'll tell you why in a second. If God has revealed a way to do things, stick with that and then do it with all your heart. I think this is what Deborah's getting at in her song. Look at Judges 5, verse 2. That the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly, bless the Lord. Verse 9. My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people, bless the Lord. Gathering an army of 10,000 unarmed men to go against 900 experienced iron charioteers in an open field looks like suicide. But that is the way God wanted it done. And they did it the way God wanted it done, and they did it with vigor. Friend, trust the ways that God has revealed and march out to do them with joy and anticipation that he's going to fulfill his purposes for you. An old pastor years and years ago, when I was contemplating a difficult decision, looked him in the eye and he said, go with God, Paul. Go with God. I don't know exactly what he meant, totally, but, but it meant something to me. to Go with the ways of God. If he says, do it this way, do it this way. God tells us to gather. But not only does he tell us to gather, he says there's a way we're to do things in our gathering. We're to read God's word. That's from the Bible. We're to pray. That's from the Bible. We're to preach God's word. That's from the Bible. Yet I know too many churches in Toronto that gather week by week. Some of them are gathering right now. And none of those three things are happening. There are no prayers. There is no public reading of scripture. And there is no preaching of God's word. 
we have to be committed to do the things the way God wants them done and then leave all the results to him. That doesn't matter whether that's life in church, in your parenting, in your marriage, in your sexuality. Go in God's ways and trust. Third is this for Christians. Be committed to your church. Yeah, you're gonna, you're gonna, this will blow your mind. <laughs> um, Romans 15.4 says this, Paul writing to the Christians, for whatever was written in former days, Old Testament, was written for our Christian instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So I read that verse, and then I look at Judges 5.23, and I say, Lord, what do you have for us here? Judges 5.23, middle of the song, strange little verse, curse Miraz, says the angel of the Lord, curse its inhabitants thoroughly because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. That's an odd little verse that I think contains a very important lesson. We, we don't know where Miraz was or who lived there. Probably because Jesus, the angel of the Lord, cursed them. Gone. What we surmise is that they were some of the people of Israel who lived somewhere near the battlefield who decided not to help their brothers. Now, you may think I am nuts to find local church membership in this verse, but I'm saying, all I'm saying is that when God saves you, he places you in a particular group of people, in our case, a local church. And when somebody in that church is in need, it is our responsibility to come to the help of the Lord. Did you see that? Human beings coming to the help of the Lord and caring for their brothers and sisters. Older saints used to say the church is the hands and the feet of Christ. Miraz was cursed because they didn't do that. If you're not the member of a church, uh, you can't really do that very well or effectively. And if you are a member of a church, you ought to do it faithfully. That takes me to my fourth lesson for us, which is this, fear the merciless judgment of God. We just need to get really clear on some facts. In, in chapter 5, this song, verses 24 to 30, it's a comparison. You've got the blessed Jael, and then you have the soon-to-be-mourning mother of Sisera. That's why I sang it kind of mockingly. It is mocking a mom that her son, the army general Sisera, is dead. And the mocking of Sisera's mother is fitting. After all, she is comforting herself with Sisera's long delay in getting home by turning to her attendants and saying, oh, he's just off raping some of the Israelite women. He'll be back after he's had his fun. No, Mrs. Sisera, he's getting his head pinned to the ground by a woman. And that is the judgment of Yahweh on Sisera. Remember, the Lord said to Barak, I will give Sisera into your hand. And then he clarified, I will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. God is not unfair, nor is he unjust to bring that judgment on Sisera. Sisera was an evil and a sinful man. And while you may not be guilty of the same kinds of atrocities as him, you might have dreamt of doing some of them or committed other sins against the Lord. 
And so the judgment on Sisera serves as a warning to you and to me. What I'm trying to say is that we all deserve what Sisera ultimately got, only worse. Jesus, in Mark chapter 9, described hell like this. He said it's a place where human souls exist forever. They never cease to exist. It is a place of never-ending fire, and it is a place that's like a grave that has never satisfied corpse-eating worms. So, friend, if, if you're not a Christian, that's Jesus telling you this is what awaits you. Sisera's death by tent peg was a shameful and horrible death, but his existence in hell after that death made the temple piercing seem like a camping trip. God has promised that same hell for everyone who does not repent from their sins and put their trust in the Savior, the final Savior, the final deliverer that God has provided. All the deliverers like Deborah, all the ones that come before her and after her, they can only give temporary reprieve, 40 years, and then it's back to suffering. We need a Savior. We need a deliverer whose salvation lasts forever. And God sent Jesus into the world to be that final and forever deliverer. He becomes the forever Savior by taking an eternity of hell on himself during those three hours of darkness he hung on the cross. Can you even fathom that? An eternity of hell, all the, the, the punishment for all your sins put on him. And he can do that effectually because he lived a sinless and law-keeping life before his unjust murder on that cross. And so the only way you can survive the just and eternal punishment of God is to have the perfect Jesus endure it for you on your behalf so that all that remains is, is for you to so identify yourself with him and his work that it applies to you. This is what it means to repent from your sins and, and to trust in Christ. Sisera trusted in his iron chariots. What do you trust in? Your credit cards? Your volunteer hours at the charity, the image of yourself you try to project on the world. Look, you need a Savior. We all need a Savior. You need a Savior in the day of final judgment, or you're going to end up like Sisera and his army. And thankfully, God's provided one. When God showed up in earthquake and deluge at the river Kishon, Sisera was routed, judged, Israel saved. When Jesus will show up on the last day, some will be thrown into the lake of torment and fire forever and ever, world without end. And some will be brought into the new heavens and the new earth, world without end. Are you a part of that Israel of God, or are you still a Canaanite? Come out from Canaan and be saved. Deborah closed her song with these words, verse 31, so may all your enemies perish, O Lord. Think about that. Just like that man perished, so may all your enemies perish. If you've not repented from your sins and put your faith in Jesus, 
You're an enemy of God. You are at enmity with God. But then she says, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. Ah, don't miss what the bee sings. Friends here might be translated as those who love you. Let those who love you be like the sun as he rises in his might. Enemies are going to perish, that's true. But those who love Yahweh, let them be like the strong man who runs his course with joy. Our ever-present burning sun in the sky, full of light and power, walking into the day like a groom walks into the morning of his wedding. How are we going to do that? Jesus told us, if you love me, what? Obey my commandments. May God make it so. Let's pray together. And so, our Lord, we pray that each of us would be spared from an eternity of wrath and separation from you. Each of us would know what it is to be hidden in Christ. Nothing would be better on this day than for every soul to leave this building 100% sure that they're right with God. So Holy Spirit, come and do your work, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.